Hello, my name is Father Gregory Pine and delighted to join you for the next installment of off-campus conversations here at the Thomistic Institute. As you may have by this point become accustomed to, we're just following up with speakers who have given presentations for the Thomistic Institute on various campuses throughout the United States and beyond in certain cases, uh, or may have contributed to a conference or an intellectual retreat. So that way we can ask those questions that may not have come up in the question and answer session or at the very least to kind of deepen our grasp or our hold on the topic at hand, the topic at stake. So today I'm very delighted to be joined uh, by Dr. Christopher Kayser coming to us from Loyola Marymount University. Thanks so much for joining for the episode, Dr. Kayser. Uh, very happy to be here. I appreciate the invitation. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Okay, cheers. And I, and I with you. Um, so many of uh, the listeners to the Thomistic Institute podcast will have heard lectures that you've given previously. I was just recounting before pushing record that I was present for one that you gave at the University of South Carolina, and then you made a few excellent contributions to the Student Leadership Conference a couple of years ago, but there have been far, far more um, since that time. Um, so the, the particular lecture that I listened to or the, the, the theme going to focus on is the connection between happiness and positive psychology or kind of like the philosophical theological foundations of happiness and positive psychology. A lot of folks will have heard that lecture, but... Okay. For those who haven't necessarily heard that lecture or heard lectures that you've given, can you just say a word of introduction, you know, who you are, where you're from, what you're doing right now? Sure. I'm a professor of philosophy and chair of the philosophy department at Loyola Marymount University. And I've been here for a pretty long time, since 1998. And my expertise is really on uh, two, two subjects in a way, Thomas Aquinas and bioethics. So most of my research is in either, either of those two areas. But what we're talking about today is kind of a third area, and it has to do with the intersection of uh, positive psychology, theology, and philosophy. So for people who don't know, positive psychology is a relatively recent movement in psychology. Uh, it was founded by a guy named Martin Seligman, who's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And he noted in uh, at the turn of the century that basically psychology for most of its history had focused on pathology, on depression, anxiety, uh, stress, things like that. And he challenged the psychological community to consider more deeply the opposite end of the human experience. So to look at resilience, uh, to look at optimism, to look at what gives people hope in difficult circumstances, to look at flourishing, and to try to approach these topics, these positive topics, uh, with the same sort of empirical uh, orientation that they had approached other topics. And so what they did is basically investigate a lot of different uh, possible remedies for unhappiness or investigate various ways to increase resilience, to increase happiness, to increase uh, optimism. And they tested them kind of the way they test medications, right, with double-blind studies. So they have, you know, half the group uh, take a, do a placebo thing and half the group take the, the do the activity or the treatment. And then they tested and tried to figure out, well, what kinds of interventions really do help people to grow in these positive characteristics? So over the last uh, 22 years or so, there's been a ton of research in this area. And I personally was very interested in, in thinking about how this research uh, dovetails and overlaps with, uh, in particular, the Catholic philosophical and theological tradition. So that's sort of where my book the gospel of happiness, it comes out of this kind of research about the intersection of philosophy, theology, and positive psychology. 
Um, so I had a theology professor a few years back who made the point that you don't typically ask a dermatologist to judge a beauty contest. And the point that he was making is if a person's training is such to identify defects um, or to, like you said, identify pathologies, then they're going to be really adept at doing just that. But they might not necessarily have a, a sense of the whole or a view for the whole. Um, so when it comes to, you know, mental health issues, this idea of kind of redirecting our gaze, not so much away from pathologies, but perhaps zooming out to include a more integral human reality or to kind of bring back into focus the question of human flourishing, I think it's something that perhaps, yeah, we, we can all use a little help um, in getting our bearings as we, as we try to make a move like that. Um, <clears throat> so I'm thinking just in terms of, okay, where we are now in the year 2022, I recently said in the year 2021, and it wasn't more than 10 months ago. So I still got to get myself. <laughs> well, it's, here in 20 I mean, it's only, yeah. it's only one year off. You didn't say 1998 <laughs> or something. So ballpark, right? Uh, yeah. Um, I feel like we've become especially adept uh, in the present day and age at identifying pathologies. Um, I don't know. In, in the last three years, especially since the pandemic, as the mental health crisis has really picked up speed, uh, do you see certain trends? Uh, and as you identify those trends, do you think, oh, man, here are some excellent resources? Basically, in your work with positive psychology and its philosophical and theological foundations, do you feel like, you know, in the present moment, there are particular ways in which it's especially well addressed to our situation, to our time? Well, I think there's no doubt that the pandemic caused unbelievable suffering for people on all kinds of levels. So you had obviously the people that actually got COVID and got really sick, some even dying. And so that's terrible suffering. And then all the people that care about them and love them, you know, they're going to be sad and suffering with that. And then really everybody in society to a greater or lesser degree had to endure all kinds of restrictions and uh, you know, various uh governmental and employment uh, authorities trying to uh, make them do things that some people didn't want to do. So it was, it was a huge, uh, huge problem and it caused unbelievable suffering. And I do think that positive psychology provides some resources that help us to move forward in a better way through uh, that kind of suffering and through whatever kind of suffering we're enduring. And one of the things is this idea that we can direct our attention towards uh, things that are uh, better, or we can direct our attention, we can have a kind of a default where we directed at problems and, and difficulties and things like that. So if you think about just a relationship with a friend, uh, no one walking around on earth right now is perfect. So if you have a friend, it is going to be true that the friend has some imperfections, problems, things that irritate you, etc., and so it's easy to kind of have as a default mode, oh gosh, they're talking again and they go on and on or, or whatever it is that kind of bugs you about your friend, or maybe they're not talking enough and they're sitting there silently. Anyway, th this, is, this is super common. And so part of the positive psychology literature has to do with appreciation and focusing on whatever's good about, for instance, your friend. And this is really very much part of uh, the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you think about Aquinas' understanding of what love is, he thinks of love as willing the good for the other for the other's sake, but also love as involving appreciation of the good of the other, and then seeking unity uh, with the other. And so the appreciation for the good is right in there. And it's not just in Aquinas, of course, it's much earlier in the New Testament, right, where in the letter... Uh, to the Philippians, it says that we should think about whatever is true, 
whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, it tells us to think about these things. So that's a good kind of lens, I think, to, you know, when you're interacting with people to kind of try to find the good news in them. And of course, there's difficulties and problems and imperfections and whatever. True, true. But because they're made by God, there is a fundamental level of goodness. And if they're a human being, there's even a greater goodness because they're made in the image and likeness of God and have, at least in potentiality, the possibility of loving God and loving their neighbor and loving themselves properly. So as long as there's someone's alive, there's always something good about them and something we can appreciate and something we can love. So I think when we're going through difficult times, it's important to uh, try to focus on those, those, those good things to help us to have a balanced perspective. Um, in the book, you make a distinction between positive psychology and its incorporation within kind of a Catholic moral vision versus just the power of positive thinking, kind of like brute force earnestness before our reality. And I think that, you know, in the present day and age, we're still kind of working our way out of an especially ironic time. It seems like like the humor or the cultural criticism often has a way of being like kind of parasitic, kind of pessimistic, um, sarcastic, cynical, vitriolic, yeah. etc. Um, and one of the ways that we as human beings feel as a result is like kind of exposed if we ever show ourselves overly earnest or dopey. Um, so sometimes when people talk about things that smack of the power of positive thinking, they're like, ah, that seems insincere. That seems ingenuine. Uh, like what is, what is the difference between the kind of mental gymnastics of just saying this thing is good when truth be told, it's not good. And then positive psychology, which is trying to help you to access what is in fact at the heart of the reality before you. Um, yeah. How would you sort some of that out? Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right that, uh, we're not going to get very far if we're just giving ourselves happy talk that has no correspondence to reality. So whatever we do, it seems to me that we ought, we do it better if we're truthful about the realities that we're facing. So if I'm going to appreciate you, for example, and I say, you know, you're a fantastic queen of England. I just thought you did such a great job in, during your reign and how you interacted during the Second World War. That was incredible. You just, you're, and, and your funeral was great. Well, uh, that's not you, right? You're not Queen Elizabeth II. So if I appreciate you under a false pretense, that's not even appreciating you. You're, you're not the Queen of England. So to appreciate you, I have to look at the reality of who you are. So if you are good at preaching, I'd say, well, you're really good at preaching. If you're good in the confessional, I'd say, wow, that you were really very helpful in confession. If you're good at writing, I could appreciate that. But I have to know you and I have to know the reality of who you are. So I don't think we're talking about kind of uh, putting on, you know, uh, rose-colored glasses and just pretending everything is, you know, perfect. I think it's properly grounded in reality, in the reality of the way things are. And sometimes the reality is quite negative, quite challenging. But I do think even there, even in challenges, there actually is a way of thinking about it that's helpful, and that would be reframing. So what I mean is we can think about something that's challenging and difficult in our lives, and we could just say, oh, this is just purely negative. But almost always, if we're facing a challenge and a difficulty, it actually also, in addition to being hard, is also an opportunity. So what I mean is, if we're going to improve and become stronger, right? If I, if I want to get stronger physically, I need to go to the gym and lift weights. 
I can't just sit on the couch and watch TV and eat potato chips and expect somehow to magically get stronger. I need to challenge myself. I need to work out. And the stronger I get, I'll maybe need to add more weight and challenge myself more. So physical development requires a kind of challenge. And I think the same thing's true of intellectual development. I mean, how much could we learn if all we did was sit around reading comic books? Well, you know, that's aimed at a child. And so it's unlikely that our brain is really going to develop a lot if we're just sitting around reading comic books. We need to read things that are challenging, things that are difficult, right? Read our Thomas Aquinas, read John Henry Newman, read Benedict XVI, read some really substantial, uh, you know, intellects. And this is going to grow us and push us. And we might not know all the terminology all the time, and we might not get it all the time. But as you know, with Aquinas, if you keep going and you persevere, wow, I mean, you're getting stronger and, and years down the road, you're going to understand way, way, way more than you did the very first time you ever read Aquinas. So I think even in negativity, if we can reframe it as a challenge, that is an opportunity for growth and for development. So virtue for Aristotle always has to do with something difficult. We're not going to get more virtue if we're doing something that's completely easy and just tying our shoes or something. It has to be something that challenges us. That's, that's kind of tough. And so when we go through tough times, it, we can reframe that really as not denying the reality of the hard difficulty of it. It is difficult. But trying to find in truth, in truth, what is the opportunity here? How is this something that could help me grow? How is it something that could help me serve others better? What is the opportunity in this challenge? And I think if we can think about it that way, we can combine both truthfulness, but also with a fundamentally positive outlook, looking in truth for what this challenging situation provides for us in terms of an opportunity for growth. Um, <clears throat> okay, so I'm thinking of another thing that you mentioned in the book, you, you dedicate some time to the practice of mindfulness, kind of distinguishing between its origins or its roots, uh, and then its kind of reception by the philosophical community, or excuse me, the psychological community, and then how it might be kind of employed. And it seems like one of the kind of core values there is attention. Right. Uh, so like paying attention. Um, and I'm also thinking of a 20th century Christian author, Luigi Gisani, who founded Communion Liberation, and he describes reason as an attentiveness to reality in the totality of its factors. Um, so I'm thinking about, okay, if we are going to access the content, you know, insofar as reality is intelligible, insofar as it is and is one and is true and is good and kind of offers itself to us under these formalities, right? We need to pay attention to it. Um, <clears throat> again, given your work in positive psychology, your work in philosophy and theology, what are some ways in which uh, we can yet, yeah, I guess, <laughs> intend to attend? Um, what are ways in which we can kind of cultivate these dispositions or habits of mind and heart, which help us to engage more profitably or fruitfully with reality, like basically to, to pay attention? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I would like to suggest something that I hope doesn't offend you. Um, something from the founder of the Jesuits. I know you're a Dominican and they think <laughs> serious problems and maybe I'll just turn off the podcast right now. But if you can bear with me. Uh, the founder of the Jesuits, I think, had a really good idea when he talked about in the spiritual exercises, something that he calls prayer by breath. And so what he what he recommends is that we take a prayer that we know very well, you know, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, and we sync up saying that prayer with our breathing. 
So the basic idea is we would say just one word of it, like our, when we exhale. And then the next word, father, when we exhale again. And the next word, who, when we exhale again. And you kind of go through the our father, you know, very, very slowly. Now, I imagine this happens to you as it happens to me and almost everyone I've ever met. Whenever we pray um, a prayer that we know like this, it's pretty easy for our mind to just wander off and we start Maybe we're saying the Our Father, but all of a sudden we're thinking about lunch and what we have to do in the afternoon and, you know, all kinds of stuff. But sometimes if we really slow it down, and especially if we sync it up with our breathing, we can really focus in. We can really focus in on what we're doing, on on praying, on the reality of who we're talking to, etc. So that's the kind of practice that St. Ignatius Loyola recommends. And I've done it uh, many times before, and I find it's really helpful. So people that want to kind of focus in on their attention they might want to try that way of praying and, you know, they might find it uh, useful as I have. <laughs> I'll have you know. Well, I'll have you know. Sounds like an aggressive lead, but this is a very ironic thing to say. Um, the, the summer that I first kind of got excited about the prospect of becoming a priest, a Dominican priest, I was living in Portland, Maine, and I was going regulated mass at a Jesuit parish because it was the only place that had frequent exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. And there was a priest there, Father Matt Monig, who I think now is at Boston College. Um, who was super helpful to me in my discernment. So I think the Lord in his providence saw to it that the circumstances of my discernment made it impossible for me to make Jesuit jokes in subsequent <laughs> years. So <laughs> probably, probably for the best. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad to hear that. Not, not, I'm glad to hear that. Not too surprised because I uh, know Father Moaning a little tiny bit. We both went to Boston College different times, but, but I've heard nothing but very, very positive things about him. So I'm glad that you had a chance to interact with him and and receive some help from them. And, and it, there, you know, there is obviously this long um, sort of uh, competition, but we can say a friendly competition uh, between the Jesuits and the Dominicans. And, you know, sometimes friendly competition really brings out the best in you, right? In other words, if, if you have somebody, you know, they're, they're bringing their A, a game and you want to win the competition, well, hopefully you bring your A game and then you can compete. And that can actually help both sides to do much, much better in the long run than if they had no competition, they were just sitting around you know, knowing that they were the best or something. So anyway, I'm glad to hear the good interactions. Amen. Hallelujah. Yeah. No place for self-congratulatory lowercase t traditions in the church's life. So mm -hmm. hopefully there's a lot of further up and further in that goes on there. Um, okay. So <clears throat> thinking then in terms of paying attention or kind of accessing the reality at stake, and then the reality at stake kind of offers itself to our inquiry or offers itself to our affection so that we might be formed by it, so that we might be shaped by it. You go on in the book to talk about, you know, virtues, specifically the habits of our engagement, the way that we are built up in the case of virtue or diminished in the case of vice and in our interaction. Um, based on your studies of positive psychology, I remember you cited the book, The Power of Habit by, is it Charles Duhigg? Um, what are some things that you can bring to the conversation as it's often conducted in philosophical and theological circles, which help us to kind of whoop, zoom back in as to what is at stake with the habit and how it's saving in the case of the Christian dispensation? Yeah, the habits are so, so important, I think. I mean, most of what we do every day is a matter of habit. Uh, you know, you wake up, brush your teeth, and make breakfast, and you go through your day, and there's a huge amount of your day that's habit. So if we can build into our lives really positive, good habits, we are going to develop so much more than if we only do good whenever, you know, the mood strikes us or that, you know, the weather looks good or something like that. And I think there's a lot of research in psychology about how to build uh, better habits. And one of the things is to kind of schedule things in. 
So for instance, if we want the habit of prayer, it isn't the best way to go to say, well, I'll pray whenever, however, I'll just, whenever I get to it or whatever, that is likely to end up with not much prayer. I think it's much more helpful to say, look, I'm going to pray every day and get it very concrete. I'm going to pray every day. You know, when I get up at, let's say 630 in the morning, seven in the morning, and I'm going to pray for 15, 20 minutes. And I'm going to pray by, you know, maybe saying the rosary, maybe doing the liturgy of the hours, maybe reading a passage from the gospel slowly and imagining myself in conversation with Jesus or as one of the characters in the story. So I think it's a little bit like exercise where I don't think it matters too much the kind of prayer that you do. In other words, I don't think it matters too much, you know, the rosary versus reading scripture versus this, but rather I think making time to do it and and really scheduling it in, making it just an everyday normal part of your life. Now, are there going to be times where something crazy happens and you don't do it? Well, yeah. I mean, just like I'm sure there's some crazy thing that can happen and you don't brush your teeth that day, right? And a fire alarm goes off, you just run out of the house. Well, okay, that day you didn't brush your teeth. But I mean, in general, right? Hopefully every day you brush your teeth, every day you eat lunch, every day, hopefully you pray. And I think it makes sense too to schedule in, uh, you know, acts of service, ways of helping others. And that'll depend on who we are. But, you know, time to, you know, for the family, time to help those that are less fortunate, time to help elderly neighbors or whatever it is that works in our situation. So the if we do this over time, what's going to happen, I think, is we can do whatever it is we're choosing to do with greater ease and with greater joy, because it's not going to be a big challenge and a big, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. It's going to be just part of our everyday life. It's part of who we are. And that is ultimately the goal is to become the kind of people who really do, insofar as we're able, reflect the love of Jesus for other people so that people can see, hopefully in our own selves, that, yeah, this is somebody who really is trying to love others, trying to serve others, trying to see what's good in others, trying to be united with others in appropriate ways. And and that is only possible, right, if we make it part of who we are, make it part of our character, you might say. And that's just another way of talking about having these good habits, right? The habits of temperance, justice, courage, practical wisdom, et cetera. These are kind of the bread and butter that we need in order to move forward in a positive way. And obviously faith, hope, and love, the God's own uh, spirit in in us, helping us to live in this very beautiful way. So yeah, I I do think that psychology can actually help us in terms of uh, establishing these habits by, um, for instance, taking into account the reality of how any habit's made, a good habit, a bad habit, a neutral habit, we, right? We all share the same human psychology. So we're going to build up habits in similar ways, whether they're good, bad, or neutral. Um, in that same section of the book, you talked a little bit about willpower. So obviously in the ambient culture, there are a lot of kind of raw appeals to willpower, um, like Nike slogan, you know, just do it. Um, and I think we're often encouraged or we're often told or commanded uh, to exercise our willpower. Um, but you were describing how uh, kind of yeah, blunt force appeals to willpower often uh, have diminishing returns or they tend to like erode the quality of your response. Um, and then you were, yeah, you were talking a little bit about ways in which to kind of refresh your will. But I'm thinking about this in, in conversation with habituation. Um, you know, there are some things where it's good to choose, but there are a lot of things where it's good not to have to choose almost, Right. you know, like, you know, I don't want to have to choose who my parents are. 
because <laughs> because I'm a zygote, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, how could I possibly, right? So um, maybe how does that help orient the conversation when it comes to genuine freedom, right? So like oftentimes we think about freedom in this kind of post-Kantian context as like, I am unconditioned by any and everything and therefore I can just pause it into the void and then, huh. Um, when truth be told, I suspect it's something different. Uh, so, so how does thinking about willpower and then thinking about the habituation, which you have just described, help us to appreciate better and to exercise our freedom? Yeah. So I think, uh, the Dominican survey Pinkers, uh, had a great insight about the nature of freedom where he distinguished between two different kinds of freedom, uh, what he called freedom of indifference. And that's just kind of being unhimbered. Uh, and then on the other hand, freedom for excellence. And so you could liken it to playing the piano. So if you have 10 fingers and you're not paralyzed, you have freedom of indifference for playing the piano. In other words, you can hit any note you want because your fingers work and and the piano's there. But that is a kind of meager, uh, thin kind of freedom. What what you really want for playing the piano is freedom for excellence. In other words, you want to be able to play beautiful music. You want to be able to read things that others have composed. You want to be able to improvise for yourself and make great jazz compositions uh, on the spot. So that's ideally what you want in terms of freedom for being an excellent piano player. Now, how do you get that freedom? Well, the only way to become really good at playing the piano is to practice playing the piano, right? You can't, you know, just look at the piano across the room and somehow magically learn how to play the piano. You can't just hear lectures about playing the piano. That's not going to, it might help you a little, but what you really need to do is sit down at the piano and maybe have a teacher, a guide, a spiritual director, somebody helping you along, but you need to play, right? You need to play pretty much every day. And if you want to be really good at the piano, you probably better play two or three hours a day. So when you practice a lot, you develop habits and those habits enable your freedom, right? You're more free to play the piano if you've got that habit developed than if you had no habit at all and all you had was just 10 fingers that worked. So in a similar way, we become more free when our habits are properly uh, developed. We become more free to love God. We become more free to love ourselves properly. We become more free to love other people. We become more and more and more and more free in when we have these good habits built up. By contrast, if we have a vice, that actually diminishes our freedom for excellence. It takes it away. So think about someone who, say, uh, has problems with alcohol, right? If somebody's an alcoholic and they're getting drunk all the time, they may feel as if they really have no freedom at all to not drink. And so their freedom is really diminished. And then their freedom to love others, to love God, to love themselves properly, that also is diminished. So I think in a way, it, it would be a mistaken view to think that sort of a virtue, a good habit is the opposite of freedom. Again, I, I would say that Survey Pinkers is quite correct, that to have a virtue is to enable ourselves to become more and more and more free. Just like to be really good at, to be habituated to the skills of basketball allows you to be more free to be excellent at basketball. If you're habituated at playing the piano, you're more free to play the piano. Um, and if you're habituated in terms of the, the cardinal virtues and the theological virtues, all those are going to help us to be stronger in the pursuit of happiness and therefore more free rather than less free. Um, okay, so in light of what you've just said, I'm thinking, like, what does it mean for us to be rational or to be reasonable? Um, so a virtue means like a good habit of mind uh, through which we act well. 
but oftentimes when we exercise habits or we act through habits, we're not necessarily thinking about it. We probably thought about it at the outset. I think in the book you talk about how you know, some theorists say it takes whatever, like 65 or 70 days worth of a continued activity for us to have a habit of that activity. Um, so we, we, we thought about it at the outset, but perhaps we're not thinking about it as deliberately or intentionally now. But I think we would want to affirm that we're still acting reasonably or we're still acting rationally when we act through that habit, even if we're not appealing you know, to our will at the moment or if we're not, you know, going through a process of deliberation as we pick up the toothbrush and wield it, you know, on our canines and our, what do you call the front ones? Incisors. Mm -hmm. Wow, man, I'm just losing it. I haven't been in a science class since high school. Um, so like what, how does that shape our understanding of what it means to be reasonable or what it means to be rational and how can that kind of set before our eyes a kind of goal of, of human flourishing? Well, I would say that good habits actually help us to be more rational. So for instance, think of the habit that someone could develop of uh, truthfulness. So they speak the truth as they understand it to others. They are able to interrogate their own actions and figure out their true motivations. And they're very sensitive to uh, seeking after the truth. Now, all that is going to help a person, I think, to grow in a positive way. So the habits that we have can actually help our uh, intellectual development or our mental development, or think of the habit of uh, reading a chapter or two from a book every day. Um, I saw a terrible statistic that said something like, uh, most Americans don't read a book in a year, not one. And I thought, wow, that, that is uh, not, <laughs> not good news. Um, but uh -huh. we can, we can turn that around, right? I mean, it's possible to, you know, make a habit. I'm going to read a chapter a day in a book. And you say, you know, I'm going to do it every afternoon, 4.30, 5, whatever. And, uh, you know, if you did that, you would be able to get through, uh, you know, dozens of books in the course of a year, right? If you just read a chapter a day. And that's not that much. Think of all the time that people use uh, looking at social media. I mean, if you just cut, took half of that time and were reading, you could really read a lot. And that's going to really help our intellectual development. So I guess in a way, I think of it a little bit like health, that if I can strengthen my heart, that's only going to help the rest of my body. If I can make my liver work better, that's only going to help the rest of my body. I mean, we are, after all, a kind of unity uh, in terms of being human persons. So to the degree that we can develop the intellectual virtues and the moral virtues, you know, however much we do that, that's going to be an upward spiral of development in a positive direction. Just like you can have a downward spiral where things kind of, you know, go bad, you can have an upper, upward spiral where strengths in one area can actually bleed over and help strengthen another area. Okay, so um, let's see. In the book, you talk a little bit about how our understanding of happiness is such that we expect a kind of imperfect happiness here on earth and then a perfect happiness in heaven. Uh, but you quote a few authors to the effect that it's not like delayed gratification, right? Or it's not a totally, what would you say? It's not like a, a, a total reversal when one dies. It's like, holy smokes, earth was like that, but heaven is like this. Um, it's something more along the lines of a progressive acclimatization or like we are at present enjoying heaven on earth. Um, so we want to kind of manage our expectations regarding what is possible here so that we don't shoot for an otherworldly happiness or perhaps an imaginary happiness and then come up short and judge our experience in light of a goal which is not 
true to form. So maybe could you just talk a little bit about the type of happiness that lies in store, you know, beyond the grave, the type of happiness that we can hope to attain to here on earth, and then how we can maybe put that between our our navigational beacons uh, so as to, yeah, provide for a good journey. Yeah. So I think Aquinas is right in distinguishing between what he calls perfect happiness and imperfect happiness. So he thinks of perfect happiness as the kind of happiness that we can have in heaven, where all our desires are satisfied, where our intellect knows the truth as far as we can know it perfectly, when our will is perfectly satisfied with the goodness of God. And everything is, obviously, as the, as the name perfect happiness suggests, just the way it should be. And then there is imperfect happiness. And so I think the right way to think about this uh, is, as you might say, the beginning, a partial sharing in what will reach its culmination later. So what I mean is this, um, if we think of happiness as perfect love, we can't have that here on earth. I mean, I don't know anyone here on earth now that loves other people perfectly. And even if someone was really wonderful at doing that, they're going to get sick, their body's going to break down, they're going to you know, have to sleep. There's, there's all kinds of interruptions in the activity of loving others. So we can't have perfect happiness uh, here below for a variety of reasons. Now, that doesn't mean we have no happiness. We can have happiness. It, there's a big difference between someone who has loving friendships with others, who's really engaged with meaningful activity, who is able to have rich friendships and deep knowledge of things on the one hand, versus someone who's lacking all those things on the other hand. So I think that even though we can't have perfect happiness here on earth, that we can certainly have what Aquinas calls imperfect happiness. And part of gaining that is a growth in virtue, a growth in these good habits, which is going to enable us to hopefully grow in this love. So one way to think about it is something like this. Um, The relationship between um, heaven and a good life is, uh, or between hell and a bad life, is not like uh, you run a red light and the cop pulls you over and writes you a ticket for, you know, $200 because you ran a red light. There's no real relationship, right, between running red light and getting that ticket. Um, Or let's say someone kills their parents and the judge says, you're going to go to prison for 40 years. Well, there's no real relationship between those two, uh, that crime and that punishment. The judge could have said, you're going to go to prison for life, The judge could have given them 50 years or 30 years. You know, it's kind of accidental relationship. But if someone murders their parents, the intrinsic punishment, you might say, is that they become an orphan. In other words, it just goes along with killing your parents as you become an orphan. And I'd say in a similar way, if God really is the source of our happiness, anyone who sins is separating themselves from the source of their happiness. And so that's why I think Augustine was right when Augustine said the punishment for sin is sin, right? Sin is its own punishment because if you're separating yourself from God, you're setting, separating yourself from the source of your own happiness. And so what I think happens is at death, the reality of who we are is made manifest and is perfected. So if in reality we hated God, we hated other people, and we hated ourselves, then that hatred just continues, But if in reality, at the moment of death, we are filled with love of God, love of neighbor, and love of ourselves, that love is perfected and continues forever. So I don't think heaven and hell are accidentally related to who we are and how we live. 
Okay, I want to just follow up with one last question on this theme of love. Um, in the book, you cite the Harvard study, that longitudinal study where they followed up with graduates for however many years and then with like a group of students, I think, from the neighborhood for however many years. And I think the researcher said at the end of our you know, study, I can summarize our findings in five words. Um, happiness is love, full stop. Um, and then thinking about what you just said with respect to sin, that sin is its own punishment. I'm thinking of um, St. Paul's description in Romans 1, where like the punishment for sin is that God leaves us to ourselves. Um, so there's a kind of solitariness to the sinful state. Um, okay, so so thinking in terms of happiness, cultivating habits of mind and heart, which conduce to happiness, not as a selfish exercise, because we generally delight in God and in the others in whom we discover that happiness. Um, you know, like a lot of the folks who listen to the Thomistic Institute podcast are engaged in an academic life of some sort, whether as students or as professors. Uh, and certainly the demands on their time are many, and it's a temptation to prioritize X, Y, and Z things before relationships. In your own academic life, um, yeah, if you could just say a word or testify to the way in which love has, um, yeah, been at the been at the center, or ways in which you've prioritized relationships uh, in the context of your work. Yeah, so my uh, vocation is uh, marriage, and so I'm married and have have kids, and so basically what I've done is try to uh, prioritize the well being of of them, in the sense that um, you know academic work can take up any amount of time that you want to give it. So there's literally no limit to the number of things that I could read, the number of things that I can write. And so, you know, if I, if I didn't have to sleep, I could literally spend 24 hours a day reading and writing and doing philosophy, doing theology. I mean, there's literally no limit to it. So I have to put limits on it. So my way of basically working uh, is to, you know, go to work and work during the day. And then when I come home to be home and to not, be, you know, working at academic things anymore and to be focused on, uh, my family. And, and yes, if the kids go to bed and everything's done, okay, maybe then, you know, if there's extra time, I'll do something. But, but I, for me, it's been very helpful, I think, to set limits to my academic life where it's not just 24 hours a day, every waking moment, but it's, you know, it's whatever, eight to four or whatever, just, and then here's the time. And in a way, I think that helps too, because if you have a deadline and you say, look, I only have till four, so I better get all this work done now. I better really focus. So rather than thinking about work as a kind of marathon where, oh my gosh, I'm slogging away and never have a break. And well, no, it's more like a sprint. So like I'll, you know, work for an hour and take a little break, work for another hour, take a little break work, and, and then stop at four. And I know I'm stopping at four. So I better really focus and really be intense at my work because there's a, there's an end time to it. I think that's for me been a very helpful uh, way of making sure that I have time for helping the kids with homework and helping my wife with whatever she needs to have done and not letting academic work just completely take over my life. Because again, it's like a gas. A gas expands to whatever space you give it. In academic life, you could spend literally all your time doing it. Uh, but if you do that and you neglect uh, the people in your life, your friends, your family, then I think at the end of the day, uh, it's going to be greatly impoverishing your own life and also the lives of those people that that uh, could have been in a good relationship with you. Well, I'll take that as an encouragement in my own present pursuits. I am currently engaged in the writing of my fourth of five chapters, <laughs> and it is a savage, savage gas, which has expanded 
to the limits of my whole life at present. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm grateful for the aurarium, a religious life, which keeps me honest to a certain degree or extent. But holy smokes, when there's that thought that kind of drives you or motivates you, it just uh, yeah, it fills every nook and cranny of your mental space. So I'm I'm close to being done thinking about this particular mystery of the life of Christ, at least in this context. I'm sure I'll keep thinking about it on two ages of ages, but yeah, truth. <laughs> yeah, now, that makes sense. That makes sense. And that's sort of how I felt when I was writing my dissertation also. It, it, you know, it, it's a big project and you're, you know, it demands a lot of time and attention. Uh, but I, I actually think these breaks can help help people do better at their work. In other words, when you stop and you do the dishes and you whatever, you know, do do other things, actually your subconscious is still thinking about you know, this topic that you've devoted so much time to. And so I found many times if I'm doing something else, all of a sudden I'll think, oh yeah, I could connect this and that, or, oh yeah, so-and-so's work is relevant for here. And so what I do is really pretty easy. I'll just write a little note to myself, you know, for the next day saying, okay, you know, relate Pinker's work to Martin Seligman's work. Do you know, just some little sentence to remind me about what to return to later. But I don't return to it at that moment. I just make a little note to myself. But then the next morning when I do my writing, then, you know, I've got this note, oh, relate Pinkera's work to Seligman's work. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember when I was doing the dishes, I thought of that. So that's the kind of thing where I think, you know, taking the break and uh, actually can help you discover new things and have new ideas rather than if you just sit at your computer and stare at it for, you know, 12 hours straight. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you're ready to you know poke <laughs> out your eyes or something, you know, <laughs> yeah, at best. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, at present, I live in a very pretty country. So when occasion arises, I just go outside and that's a, a healing bomb. Nice. But yeah, hopefully my travails will soon come to an end. Um, but uh, as I had promised, that was the last question. So thanks so much for having taken the time. Uh, super appreciative. And it's very helpful for me too to kind of suss through these, these topics because they're things that I return to. But sometimes when I try to explain them to another person, I realize that I don't actually understand them that well. So it's really helpful to, to talk them out. So thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and having me on the on the podcast. Thanks. Yeah. And if folks want to follow up with you, follow up with your work, um, you know, particularly the book about which we have been discussing, uh, you know, in this episode, where can they find information? So the book is called The Gospel of Happiness, and it's uh, available wherever books are sold. But they might want to go to St. Augustine's Press, the press's website, to to check that out. And then I'm also on Facebook if anybody wanted to look me up there, or I'm also on Twitter, uh, professor underscore Kaiser. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's where people can find me if they want. Boom. Those are the things. All right. Well, thanks again to you and to our listeners. Thanks so much for having tuned into this episode of Off Campus Conversations with the Thomistic Institute. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe to the Thomistic Institute podcast, whether on YouTube, or on the podcast app where you follow it. Um, and then, yeah, we'll look forward to chatting with you at the next opportunity. Know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we will catch you next time at the Thomistic Institute.